If West Nile virus has a season, this is it. Welcome to TGen Talks, I'm Carrie Dozer. The end of summer in Arizona, as in many places, is hot and humid, and it's the perfect environment for the spread of West Nile virus. On this episode of TGen Talks, we meet a new member of the research team whose specialty includes the study of West Nile and the mosquitoes that carry it. At the same time, this researcher is tracking COVID-19 and its spread through our communities using wastewater samples and some pretty unique methodology. For this episode of TGen Talks, we are at TGen North in Flagstaff, Arizona, and we're meeting a fairly new member of the research team here, Dr. Crystal Hepp. Tell me a little bit about your background and how it is that you came to work for TGen. So my background is really um, in understanding how different pathogens move over time and space and through different populations. And we've really focused the past few years on, well, since about 2015, heavily on RNA viruses, so West Nile virus, more recently uh, coronaviruses, but also St. Louis encephalitis virus. And um, I suppose the reason that I, how I came to TGen is just because there's such a translational component to the research that I've already been working on the past few years that it really made sense for me to work with um, this team who's already doing so many other translational things. So you've been a big part of TGen's COVID research, but from a slightly different perspective. Mm-hmm. Tell me what it is that you study. Well, a few different things. We have we have several different projects going on. One of them is um, looking for COVID in students in different school districts, as well as individuals in long-term care facilities to try to um, help those agencies, institutions monitor their um, situational awareness of COVID over time and space. But then also we've been working on wastewater studies since March of 2020. And we already had several partnerships in place to allow us to access different wastewater uh, sites. And so since the very beginning, we've been looking for COVID and providing information to our county partners, local partners, state partners. How do you conduct that research? You're obviously lab-based and wastewater is not in the lab. How does that research take place? Yeah, we've got, we have several different partners and I'll, I suppose we'll f- focus on the first partners, which have been the City of Flagstaff. We actually have a wastewater dashboard um, that's a collaboration between the City of Flagstaff, um, Coconino County um, Health Services and TGen. So with the city, what we do is we go out to the wastewater treatment plants once weekly, and they provide us samples from their influent, and then we bring those samples back to the lab and test them here. But with the different sites, so for example, um, congregate living settings and different locations where you have a lot of people, we actually access the wastewater through uh, different manholes. And we've been using a more swab technique, which in the past has been using um, big strips of gauze that have been wound up together and secured by fishing line and dangled into the wastewater flow. That sounds really low tech. (laughs) Right. But we instead, we didn't want to have to be bundling a bunch of gauze together. And so we use ultra-sized tampons and dangle that in the wastewater flow for 24 to 48 hours, pull those samples out, bring those samples back to the lab. And so... It's a really low-cost way for us to provide some important situational awareness to our community. You probably never thought you'd be doing that. Never. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when it happened, um, especially with the wastewater, these different composite samplers that you can buy, they're $5,000 a piece. And we were sampling at so many different sites that it was not feasible at the time because... Different agencies were worried about budgets. There mm-hmm. wasn't a lot of money available. So we really quickly had to think of what, what is a low-cost way that we can still provide all this information. Who came up with that? So um, actually, um, 
back during the time of typhoid. And so I think the first publication was back in late 1930s, early 1940s. Um, researchers would go out and instead of taking grab samples from from the wastewater, which is just going out and grabbing a cup of the wastewater as it flows through, they wanted to get a more composite sample. And so having something that was sitting in the wastewater over time, picking up the sample, um, like gauze, was was better than just these grab samples. And so, and then we thought that we were the first uh, to come up with using tampons for <laughs> cold. But then you got the samples. bad news that someone else had thought of Somebody it. Somebody from the CDC, I think, in the late '80s in Indonesia, had used uh, tampons to to sample wastewater so it had been done one other time but it wasn't something that was widely used um, but since we started doing it there have been several um, institutions that we passed our protocols on to and it's become um, a pretty widely used I don't want to say technology but uh, technique what do you learn about COVID from wastewater why would it be important to study that virus after it's infected an individual so we don't we're not really focusing on the individual level it's more on the population level so what we're not just getting presence absence when we look at wastewater samples we're actually getting a quantitative value so an estimate of how much virus is circulating in the wastewater at any given point in time and what we've seen is that the signal in wastewater really mirrors what what we see in the number of human cases sometimes several days and even weeks in advance of a surge, a uh, COVID surge. And so it can, it can either give you situ- situational awareness at that exact time of what's going on in the population or even a week or two in advance. So it can, it can help uh, pub- our public health agencies prepare. Also, if you think about the transition that we've undergone. So we really really were doing a lot of PCR testing, but a lot of people have transitioned to rapid testing. Mm-hmm. And rapid testing is very useful for individuals to know if they're positive and make their own individual decisions, but it's harder to get a community-level sort of situational awareness. And wastewater doesn't care how you... It doesn't you're, discriminate. It, doesn't it reports discriminate. for you. It reports for you. So it's, it's pretty unbiased, and that's what we're reporting out. What is your research shown you about wastewater after it's been treated. Is it safe? Is it clean of COVID and other viruses? Yeah, so, well, especially of um, COVID and other RNA viruses because they tend to be very sensitive. And so these quality control processes that the different wastewater treatment plants have in place, they really do completely remove the virus from from the wastewater. We can't detect any any RNA after, after the wastewater treatment process. Like most researchers at TGen, you don't just do one thing. So you're not just looking at COVID and wastewater. What else is on your plate? So our, our other big project that we have going on, uh, we, we do have another one that's that's kind of gearing up right now. But the other big project that we have going on right now and, and that started back in 2016 has to do with West Nile virus. So we've been working with several different vector control agencies, primarily and in, in starting with Maricopa County Vector Control. But now we are also working with agencies in um, Yuma, different parts of California, Nevada, Utah, to really understand how West Nile virus is circulating over time and space. And if there are hot, regional hotspots, local hotspots, because if you can understand where hotspots are, then you can apply different interventions to try to drive down the virus before it spills over into humans. How do you study that incidence? It's so seasonal. Does West Nile occur anywhere else? Is it purely mosquito-borne and therefore fairly seasonal? Yeah, it's it um, definitely exists primarily in it this enzootic cycle. And what that is um, in this case is circulation primarily between birds and mosquitoes. So... Um, birds, they develop a really high level of virus 
in their in their bloodstream so that if an infected bird was to get bit by an un, uninfected mosquito, then the, inf- the mosquito could become infected. And so it keeps that cycle going. But occasionally, they're an infected mosquito will bite a human, that human doesn't develop a super high level of viremia, even though they might get really sick. So an uninfected mosquito could not come and get infected from a human. It has to be from a bird or, or another animal that would develop really high levels of viremia. This is the first time I've ever, it's ever occurred to me that a mosquito bites a bird. I just thought mosquitoes bit humans. Do no. mosquitoes bite all animals? They do bite a lot of animals, but the Culex mosquitoes in uh, Maricopa County especially that transmit West Nile virus, they definitely prefer birds. So different mosquitoes have preferences for different blood meal types. Aedes aegypti, the um, the one, the mosquitoes that transmit Zika, dengue, yellow fever, they have a preference for human blood, whereas the mosquitoes in Maricopa County that we're worried about with West Nile, they have a pre- strong preference for bird blood. How many different kinds of mosquitoes are there? No, I know, I know about the ones that we're working with, um, but you know, globally there are just so many different types of mosquitoes. You know, you've got mosquitoes, uh, Anopheles gambia, that are transmitting malaria. You've got Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus that are going to be transmitting Zika, dengue, and those things. And then um, typically the Culex family. So Culex, in Maricopa County, it's Culex tarsalis and Culex quinquefasciatus. Um, <laughs> That's quite a name for a mosquito. <laughs> sure is. Um, but th- those are the ones we really focus on in the Southwest. What's the hope with West Nile? Obviously, you want to see trends and you want people to prevent the bite. Is that, is that the best hope? Or is there, do you have hopes that your research will lead to a better prevention or uh, a better cure? So, so prevention is really what the game that we're in. And just focusing again on Maricopa County, where we've had our sort of longest standing study, we found that in Maricopa County, the endemic population of West Nile virus there is the long, longest standing population of West Nile virus in any county in the United States. Lucky so, us. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a really important place. But also what we're seeing from previous years is that there's a lot of spillover from Mar- from West Ni- of West Nile in Maricopa County to different counties in the southwestern United States. So, so that means that the West Nile virus in Maricopa County is not just important for the public health of Arizona citizens, but also for many other places in the southwest. And what we're trying to do is identify hotspot locations where you could go in, for example, where, where our vector control agency partners might be able to go in, apply early season interventions like larvicides to drive down that mosquito population in these hotspot areas before it um, before it spills over into humans. You just recently were the first author of a paper on West Nile. What was the finding and um, what was the research that led up to it? So that study, what the, the big takeaway from that study is that Maricopa County does not continuously have importations of West Nile virus from other locations in the United States. It does occasionally, but those tend to fizzle out. Um, what we really found is that for a long period of time, and now it's for the past decade, we've had a single importation that happened about a decade ago that keeps reemerging every year. And so in Maricopa County, then, it's not typically a matter of um, if, it's a matter of when the reemergence is going to happen. So that was a big finding for us. Um, it helps you think about, okay, so we're not we're not worried, so so worried about importation from other locations, but we really need to think about how to handle our own environment um, because we know that it's there and it's probably going to keep reemerging year after year. When you talk about an importation of West Nile, you're talking about a different strain of the same virus. 
Well, so, yes, so a different strain of the same virus. Um, West Nile entered the United States um, probably in 1998 and was first detected in 1999, um, came across the Atlantic. So it's relatively new. It's relatively new, yeah. So it was first detected in New York back in 1999, and within four or five years, about five years, it made its way all the way across the United States to, to every single state, um, because of the presence of these Culex mosquitoes that we that were already in place, but then with Maricopa County, what we found is that it's stuck. It, it is not. It's not um, dying out every year because of the permissive environment. So just like a lot of people who moved to Maricopa County, they liked it and they stayed. Yep, people like Maricopa County. It's a friendly West Nile environment. It is. Yes. So, so what next? Do you continue research along that same? set of questions? Do you move on to another set of questions? What's next for you? Yep. So what we're, what we're starting up now is we are trying to do more real-time genomic surveillance because what we find is with the West Nile virus genomes, the diversity that accumulates in the virus, it accumulates faster than mosquitoes get infected or than human cases um, occur. So it, it happens before. So we think that we're getting about four weeks we're, we're seeing the virus, the virus population increase in size four weeks before we see an increase in mosquito counts or human cases. And so um, understanding when the virus is increasing the environment can give you an estimate of risk of spillover, which can allow, allow for triggering the public to, okay, you need to be taking these steps to prevent yourself from getting bit, to make your backyard a little less friendly to these different mosquitoes, um, to try to prevent the spillover of human cases. It gives us time to implement interventions. What have I missed? I've asked you about two big areas of study. Is there anything else you're looking into or plan to or want to here at TGen? Yeah, so we have um, one study that we are planning out with a large group of folks to look for um, coronaviruses in different an animal populations. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's important for us to understand which populations might be able to be reservoir species, so that we can expect, so that we can try to start estimating when we might see spillover back into humans or if there would even be spillover back into humans. But first we have to identify those reservoir species. And so we have a study um, planned that, that we're going to kick off here pretty soon. It sounds like you've done about three years of work and you've only been here for six weeks. Yeah. Is the pace of work at TGen, is that the way it is? That is the way that my group has always existed. So, um, so we, yeah, we 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 keep busy. All right. Um, if I could give you more hours in the day, I would. That sounds like you're <laughs> onto some exciting stuff. Thanks for taking the time, considering yep. how busy you are. I Thank appreciate you. it. Thanks. For more on TGen's research, go to tgen.org/news. The Translational Genomics Research Institute, part of City of Hope, is an Arizona-based nonprofit medical research institution dedicated to conducting groundbreaking research with life-changing results. You can find more of these podcasts at tgen.org slash tgentalks, Apple and Spotify, and most podcast platforms. For TGen Talks, I'm Carrie Dozer.